Fenway Park on a summer day. There's history, there are cold, refreshing beverages, and there is baseball. It is a beautiful summer trio. But right around the corner from Fenway Park, there's more beauty and more history in the form of a seven and a half acre garden space. Not one big garden, but hundreds of individual plots. This is the Fenway Victory Gardens. And you might think this is related to baseball wins, but these gardens go way back, back to World War II, when Americans were told that because of the massive war effort, we needed to grow more food. And growing a victory garden was a perfect way to play your part. At their peak during the war years, there were millions of these gardens all across the country. But today, there's only two of these gardens left, and only one of them is still in its original spot, down the street from that Boston staple. I'm Dylan Thuris, and this is Atlas Obscura, a celebration of the world's strange, incredible, and wondrous places. Today, we are breaking out our garden spades and digging into the Fenway Victory Gardens, the story of their miraculous survival and enduring impact. After this. If you're looking for a place where the wide open skies and the towering mountains inspire you to find an untapped part of yourself, you might want to take a trip to Wyoming. It's a place where bold, curious spirits forge their own way on all types of adventures. There is no shortage of iconic, expansive landscapes out there. You can discover breathtaking hikes, stunning state parks, authentic Western culture, and other historic sites— along with the tales of famous outlaws like Butch Cassidy and pioneers like Buffalo Bill Cody. The truth lies west. Discover yours at TravelWyoming.com. At Rural First, we're the leader in rural construction loans because we don't work here. We work out here. We live rural, which means we know just what you need to build rural. Our dedicated team of loan specialists works with you throughout the construction process. And with our digital tool, you can manage your project all in one place. That's how Rural First gets you closer to what matters. Rural First is a registered trademark of Farm Credit Mid-America. NMLS 407249. Equal housing lender. Loan subject to approval and eligibility. Other terms and conditions may apply. Visit RuralFirst.com for more details. If you walk into the Victory Gardens, you will see hundreds and hundreds of fenced-in plots, each about 12 to 15 feet wide and about 20 to 30 feet deep. And what makes these places especially beautiful is that each garden is made entirely from the vision of its individual creator. Some are filled with colorful flowers like roses and daisies, while others are filled with fruits and vegetables, things like apples, cabbages, every one of them a little different. For some people, this is their urban backyard. That is Pam Jorgensen. She's the president of the Fenway Garden Society. It's the organization that takes care of the Victory Gardens. And so you will go there and there will be a couple chairs, maybe a kiddie pool for their toddler or a sandbox, um, a couple plants, but it's basically a place to be outside. The Victory Gardens were created during World War II 
At the time, FDR wanted to encourage Americans to play a part in supporting the war effort. And one way they could do this was by growing food in their communities to increase the overall supply at home and for the soldiers. And companies supported these efforts. They would give out packets of seeds, labeled victory seeds, along with purchases of their products. In exchange, they got some nice tax breaks for promoting the war effort. With both private interest and government support lined up behind Victory Gardens, millions of gardens started popping up all over the country. Folks began making Victory Gardens in their backyards, in open lots, on rooftops. Now, unlike Europe and Asia, the U.S. was not experiencing crisis-level food shortages during World War II. So the, the movement was really more about citizen solidarity than urgent domestic need. Nonetheless, the effort bore fruit. It really genuinely produced so much fruit. By 1943, 40% of the country's fresh fruits and vegetables came from victory gardens like these. And all across the country, folks just bought into this idea that they could play a part into the war effort and that they could do it by gardening. And the Department of Agriculture put out a lot of information to help people be better growers and better growers of food and you know, advice on how to can your vegetables to preserve them, etc. There were posters with all sorts of slogans trying to instill pride in growing your own food. Things like, your country needs soybeans, grow more in 44. Or, war gardens for victory, grow vitamins at your kitchen door. But after the war was over, the gardens began to fade. They just didn't hold the importance they had during the war years. Federal funding and tax breaks went away, and the priorities of cities changed. In Boston, a lot of those new priorities were about stimulating growth in the city center. And it meant there was also pressure to tear down the Victory Garden, which was right around the corner from the famous Fenway Park. But a man named Richard D. Parker organized the Fenway community to save the gardens and then played a major role in creating the Fenway Garden Society. It is the same organization that Pam is the president of today. And somehow they won that argument and they continued gardening until about the 1970s. I think it was mid-70s when people, developers, looked at this land and thought that a better use of it would be a parking lot or maybe a hotel or a hospital. And at that point, the gardeners mobilized and argued again and won. Richard D. Parker and the Fenway Garden Society managed to fight off the city. They kept it from destroying the park. And they also brought some order to the way the gardens were maintained and distributed. One day, in the late 1960s, a World War II vet who had just moved to Boston was walking by the Victory Gardens. He bumped into Richard D. Parker, and this chance encounter changed his life. Uh, I just saw him and said, I want a garden. Uh, and they gave me a garden right away. That's Arthur Rose. He is that World War II vet. He's been a member of the Victory Garden since 1968. He just retired from gardening. He is 104 years old. When Arthur first moved to Boston, he did all the typical stuff. He went to the Boston Commons, he saw the sights, and he took in a couple of games at Fenway. I've been to the games, I've got bored. And I can ask who won when they get out sometimes to who. <laughs> but uh, basically, uh, I'd rather not have Fenway Park there. <laughs> well, the traffic is bad. 
Today, to get a garden plot to Victory Gardens, you have to be a Boston resident and you put your name on a waiting list, where it's about a 12 to 15 month wait. But back when Arthur first moved to Boston, after serving in both World War II and the Korean War, gardening wasn't quite as in as it is today. I mean, you know, people go by those gardens and they see the red tomatoes and they say, oh, isn't that nice? I want a garden. But they don't know how much work is involved in getting those tomatoes to that stage. But I knew what it was, so I just fell right into it. Arthur is from Michigan, so the climate of Boston was familiar to him. And so was gardening. In fact, when I grew up, my father would make my brother and me uh, weed the garden, and I thought I'd never get in the garden again. As it turns out, while Arthur was fighting in World War II, he didn't really know that the Victory Gardens existed. The gardens were not actually needed to feed American troops or our allies, But now, living in Boston, the Victory Garden gave him something to do outside of his 9-to-5 as a garment salesman. And it also gave him a sense of community. Community that still lasts to this very day. That's my only friends now. (laughs) And uh, uh, of course, I've given up the garden now. I'm so old, but uh, they still keep in touch and I keep in touch. And so, you know, I still have a link. And uh, it's been a bonus in my life, actually, so that, uh, you know, I have fond memories of all the things that went on. Today, the Fenway Victory Gardens still provide a beautiful space for folks to experiment and get in touch with nature in a hands-on way. It can be tough to do in a city like Boston, where people don't necessarily have traditional backyards. And the community it provides has only grown bigger and more diverse over the years. There are, I'm told, 14 different languages spoken in the gardens. 20 to 30 percent of our gardeners are, quote, senior citizens, which means over the age of 65. And Arthur, who is, in fact, a few years older than 65, says that the garden has become kind of another home for him. This is a place where he can sit down and reflect. The world has changed all around his garden over the past five decades. But his plot has stayed much the same. I know in later uh, times, I just like watching people go by (laughs) while I sat in my garden and looked at my flowers and vegetables. But um, just doing it. And having neighbors, you know, what, looking at their what they're doing and what I'm doing. I guess if you live in the city, it's really nice to have outdoor space. For some of us, mucking in the dirt, growing things from soil, getting your hands dirty, really matters, whether it be your own, you know, I like to refer to my garden as my happy place. I think it does a lot for people's mental health. I think it's um, just the joy of being outside in a place that feels that feels like it's home for you. If you want to visit the Fenway Victory Gardens, go right ahead. It is free and just a street over from Fenway Park. You can't miss it.
Our podcast is a co-production of Atlas Obscura and Stitcher Studios. This episode was produced by Baudelaire. The production team includes Doug Baldinger, Chris Naka, Camille Stanley, Manolo Morales, Gabby Gladney. Our technical director is Casey Holford. This episode was mixed by Luce Fleming. If you want to learn more, be sure to visit atlasobscura.com. There is a link in the episode description. And our theme and end credit music is by Sam Tyndall. I'm Dylan Thuris, wishing you all the wonder in the world. I will see you next time. At Rural First, we're the leader in rural construction loans because we don't work here. We work out here. We live rural, which means we know just what you need to build rural. Our dedicated team of loan specialists works with you throughout the construction process. And with our digital tool, you can manage your project all in one place. That's how Rural First gets you closer to what matters. Rural First is a registered trademark of Farm Credit Mid-America. NMLS 407-249. Equal housing lender. Loan subject to approval and eligibility. Other terms and conditions may apply. Visit RuralFirst.com for more details. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers. But you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader.